Hello and welcome to the latest edition of DChat, a PLU podcast featuring interviews with PLU academic deans and highlighted by questions submitted by PLU alumni. My name is Zach Powers. I work in PLU's Division of Marketing and Communications. Today I'm joined by Dr. Kevin O'Brien, who this past summer was named Dean of the Division of Humanities. How's it going, Kevin? It's going well. Nice to be here, Zach. How long have you been at PLU? This is my 11th year. Uh, I started in 2006. So did you have a, a teaching career somewhere else before you came here, or did you wind up here pretty quickly after grad uh, school? This was my first real job. Uh, so I taught in grad school at Emory University in Atlanta uh, as a grad assistant for a few years, but this was the first time I was really paid to do it and did it full-time. So this is, this is kind of my only grown-up job. <laughs> Are you from the South? I am from Atlanta originally. I was back home doing grad school there. But now, in my 11th year, I wouldn't go back. Uh, I'm a Northwestern by, by now. How did you find PLU or did PLU find you? It was the job. So uh, I found it in a job ad. The job was sort of modeled on what my predecessor, Bob Stivers, had done, which was a job in Christian ethics that bridged the religion department and the environmental studies program. And that was exactly the kind of work I did. So I jumped at it. It looked like my dream job. And it was, in fact, my dream job. That's awesome. So that kind of leads into the next question of, I'm curious just to give people a feel for what sort of courses that you teach. I know you, pro- you teach all sorts of different courses, but kind of what's your bread and butter almost every year? Most often, before this year, I'm teaching less now, the courses I taught most often were an introductory Christian ethics class, which was sort of a broad introduction to the Christian tradition and wrestling with moral issues, and an introductory environment and religion course, which was helping students see ways that environmental problems and religious traditions connect and sometimes clash and what religious traditions across the world are are doing and thinking about environmental issues today. That's interesting. So on a personal side, your interest in the religion and the environmental issues, where does that come from? An outdoorsy youth um, with a, yeah. you know, with a, a pastor father or mother? Or no, no. Yeah. Yeah. yeah those, th- that would have made better sense. No, I was not an outdoorsy youth. And indeed, I was not outdoorsy before I moved out here. So I always felt like kind of a fake environmentalist uh, before I moved out here. But then, you know, you move to the Northwest and you kind of have to hike and buy your work clothes at REI and stuff. Uh, When I started college, I I really wanted to do peace studies and mediation. And the school I went to had a study away program, a peace studies program in Northern Ireland. And so I went to Northern Ireland to study peace studies. I thought I would end up being a lawyer or a mediator or some kind of diplomat. But what I found fascinated me most in Northern Ireland was the religious roots of the conflict Hmm. and how, in that case, both Protestants and Catholics were using religion and, in my opinion, misusing religion to justify conflict. And then at the end of my time in Northern Ireland, I spent a few months at this community called Corrymeela, which is out on the sort of far northern edge of Northern Ireland, overlooking the ocean. On a clear day, you can see Scotland, but there's never a clear day. Corrymeela was a peace center designed to bring Protestants and Catholics together, and it brought them together precisely in this non-urban natural space where Mm -hmm. you can see the ocean, where you can see fields. And so really that trip changed my mind about what I wanted to do, got me really interested in religion, and got me more and more interested in how... Peace, the goal of religion, can be achieved better in a more natural or at least a less uh, a less hectic, overcultured environment. So that, that's where I think the root came from. It was really in college, and that's I think that that kind of drove me to teach college because I saw sort of what can what you yeah. can learn, how it can change your future. Do you think your being kind of inherently very uh, interdisciplinary and having appreciation and reverence for study away and international education that this makes you a really strong and almost obvious fit to serve as dean of the humanities department, which we haven't said yet, houses, (laughs) languages and literatures, English, 
philosophy and I'm missing one. And religion. Religion, yeah. of course. Yeah. I keep uh, that one in mind too. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I wouldn't say it makes me really strong. Uh, it's early days yet, right? I've been in the job for a couple of months. I just mean um, as far as your background and you're not yeah. necessarily a religion professor who's mm-hmm. been wholly focused on religion. Yeah, I think that's right. I've never worked within just one department. Like I said, I was hired here and expected to do some work with environmental studies. And so I think that gives me two things that I work really hard at. And one is the sense that there's never just one discipline at the table. There's never just one way to think about a problem. And also, you know, work with environmental studies not only got me in touch with people in philosophy and the English department and language and literature early on, but also people in the sciences and people in the social sciences and the school of business. And I think, you know, one of the key jobs of the dean is to be representing the humanities to the other schools, to the other deans. And I'm uh, enjoying those conversations. And those really do build on stuff I'd already been doing in environmental studies. So as a dean, what are a lot of your main tasks or what are you doing on not necessarily a day-to-day but a week-to-week or a Mm month-to-month basis and then also how much do you still get to teach because you see someone who's really passionate about Mm -hmm. students and teaching and absolutely that probably is something that's you're not too excited about yeah, that's absolutely right. I, uh, I, I miss the teaching when I don't get to do it. And one of the things I like about the way this position works for me is I'm still teaching one course per semester. So okay. it's a third as much as I used to. Uh, but I still have that regular rhythm. I still uh, my week kind of has these tent poles of meeting the students and the classes. And I still have regular meetings uh, about papers and advising and things, which I really love. The rest of the work is a lot of different things, a lot of meetings. It wouldn't surprise you to learn. And somebody told me that when you become dean, you have to stop think of the meetings as a distraction from your job and start thinking of the meetings as your job. Mm. So I have meetings about budgets a whole lot. I have meetings about curriculum a whole lot. Unfortunately or fortunately, I'm the person that people go to if there's a complaint about a grade or a professor. And so I have those meetings sometimes, not too often because we have amazing students and faculty, of course. And, and then, yeah, no, no, but it'll never happen. It'll never happen much. <laughs> And then a lot of meetings about future initiatives, right? The thing that's great about the Division of Humanities is I've got about 50 faculty, all of whom have amazing ideas for courses, for study away programs, for minors, majors we could be doing. And so a lot of my meetings are hearing about those ideas, trying to get people in conversation, bring them together, and see where we can go, see what we can do. And that sounds really overwhelming, especially for you, someone who's kind of a positive, someone who I would think wants to be an empowering leader. That seems kind of like a difficult thing to, to parse out and prioritize and yeah, I mean, maintain I, relationships at the same time. And. Yeah, it's definitely, I mean, there's definitely difficulties. I guess I'd say uh, it, it's so much better to have the problem that, that we have lots of good ideas and sure. can't do them all right away than if we had the opposite problem of nobody's really all that energized. And <laughs> so um, so being able to say, that's a great idea. Uh, we're not going forward with that one this, right in this minute, but here's what we are doing and here's when we might be able to pick that up in a couple of years is much easier than sort of trying to drum up, come on, come up with something. And I've never had to do that. Uh, people are excited, energized, and really creative. So you seem to be a faculty member who's always been involved in the planning of events and guest speakers or on committees and generally just really active and, and pretty visible on campus. Is that something that you've grown into or coming out of grad school did you aim to be that sort of community focused campus leader? I definitely didn't aim to do it. Most people would say this. It was even more true of me. When I got out of grad school, I was thinking about the classroom all the time. I was I was worried about these 30 students in front of me at every any given moment and I didn't feel like I had much bandwidth to do anything else. What's been exciting is to see the ways the other stuff we do on this campus is an extension of that, that we are also teaching when we organize events. We are also teaching when we plan curriculum. And so it's really uh, when I learned that 
I was a better teacher when there were great lectures that I could be sending my students to and we could talk about the next day in class that I started getting more involved in planning events and working with other So it's always curriculum. kind of still been about that end goal of... Absolutely. And I think the, the best advice I got from a mentor about being dean was that a dean is still a teacher and you're still trying to create space for good conversation and you're still trying to make the people you're working with uh, as smart as they can be and look good, right? And what changes is, as a teacher, I was trying to make my students do the best work they possibly could. And now, as dean, I'm trying to help my faculty, as well as my students, do the best work they possibly can. So that's the second answer where you've just mentioned a mentor relationship. And, yeah. And a mentor imparting something that was really calming or directing for you. Certainly now as dean, I'm sure you'll be in the position to mentor lots of faculty and still relying on mentors in, in your professional and personal life. It seems, depending on how one might define mentor, it seems unrealistic that you would mentor all 50 of your faculty. Oh, and of, cor- and yeah. of course, many of your faculty don't have that particular need. But what does mentorship mean to you? And is that something that you're leaning into this first semester as dean? Yeah, I mean, I think the uh, I'd say two things about that. One, uh, one thing mentoring means to me is uh, being part of a community that mentors. And I think uh, I'm absolutely not a mentor to all 50 humanities faculty. Yeah. A bunch of them are mentors to me. And what's great about being in the humanities is we're a community that sort of has each other's backs. And I think given the situation, sometimes I have no clue what to do about a certain student or an issue, and I can go to colleagues who I know will have good answers. So I think we're all sort of mentoring each other in lots of ways. The other thing I'd say, this came from a student. I had a student talking about the humanities to some prospective students, and she was supposed to sort of sell her major. She was a religion major. We were talking about, like, talk about what's great about the religion major. And she absolutely refused to do that because what she said is, I think the religion major is great, and it thrills me, but what you need to do to these prospective students is find what's really exciting to you and follow that passion. That's really on message for POU. Yeah, absolutely right. Yeah, so she she did much better than what we'd asked her to do, right? As usual, (laughs) our students are smarter than we are. But that's what a great mentor does, right, is figures out what's going on inside you and how can that be the best it can be. And so when I'm in a position where somebody's asking me for advice, I'm trying really hard to figure out like what, you you probably already know the answer to this, right? You probably already have an instinct and what is it and do you think it's a healthy instinct? And if people can be as teachers, as scholars, as students doing work they love and really energized about it, usually the rest is going to work itself out. We're going to be right back with alumni questions for Dr. O'Brien. On Open to Interpretation, host and PLU communication professor Amy Young is joined by PLU faculty members to discuss a single word commonly used in the news, on social media, and on college campuses. Past episodes include discussion of words like advocacy, climate, protest, and gender. Listen to episodes of Open to Interpretation and other PLU podcasts by subscribing to PLU Audio on iTunes or by visiting plu.edu audio. Welcome back to DChat. We're talking today with Dr. Kevin O'Brien, who is the Dean of the PLU Humanities Department and a religion professor here at PLU. We're going to get in now to some alumni questions. Our first question is from Marisa Buss, who graduated in 2006 with an English major, and she's the communication manager at Clover Park School District. Congrats to her. She just transitioned over to Clover Park a couple weeks ago. Her question is pretty broad. It says, with the current decline in liberal arts university enrollment, How would you meet the challenge of making the humanities relevant to a new generation of students? Yeah, I think that's a 
I mean, that's a great question. That's in some ways the question, right, of being in the humanities right now. And I think what reassures me about that question is I hear it as a question of communication, not a question of content. I don't think the humanities has to do a lot different in its core in what it is to be relevant to what's going on in the world today. But I think we have a little work to do to convince people that what we're doing is relevant. But, you know, so just to take... um, Take uh, one example. If you want to think about the current movements for racial justice like Black Lives Matter that are going on in the world today, you don't want to be doing that without thinking philosophically about deep questions. What do we mean by justice? Uh, Where did the construct of race come from? Those are philosophical questions, right? You don't want to be looking at a movement for justice today without thinking about the religious impulses that motivated previous movements for racial justice, like Cesar Chavez and the farm workers who were motivated by deeply Catholic principles, like Dr. Martin Luther King, motivated by deeply Baptist principles, like mm-hmm. Malcolm X, motivated by by Islam. You need to study religion if you want to really think about that. You don't want to study movements for racial justice without reading James Baldwin, without reading Claudia Rankin. And, uh, and you're going to do that in literature classes and, and English classes. And finally, you certainly don't want to talk about racial justice and only talk in English and only talk in, with people who come from a culture like yours, right? Absolutely. So you need language in the literatures to have that discussion. I'm not worried that we're not relevant. I am worried that people don't always show up at PLU knowing we're relevant. But luckily, they end up in our classes. And, uh, and I think they get convinced pretty quickly. How do you showcase that yeah. awesome elevator pitch Absolutely. for the humanities that you just shared? How do you sort of deliver that to first year mm-hmm. undecided majors or even students that think they're a major in something else but but might switch. Is that what a lot of these introductory courses are about and these introduction and these writing courses or or things like Absolutely, that? I mean yeah. and, and is that something that you tell yourself or you tell faculty, you know, if we do our jobs, that's just going to be a reciprocal effect? Or mm-hmm. or do you have that a little bit more in your consciousness and is there a little bit more strategy than that? I think it's got to be both. Um, I'd say uh, it's a rhetoric job is the humanities word we'd give. And maybe that's different from marketing. I don't know. But uh, but we do have some convincing to do. And we do, you know, like I said, I, I bring I bring my majors uh, to fall preview day to talk to the students uh, to convince them, yeah, this stuff is going to feel really relevant and get really interesting once you're here. Something I think the student's question is great. Um, the liberal arts is uh, suffering some questions, but PLU still got this liberal arts core. And so we do insist that when students show up, they take a writing course and there they're going to be shown the power of language and the power of learning to communicate well. And by the time they leave here, they're going to have taken a philosophy course. The liberal arts core of PLU was designed by people who knew this stuff mattered. And I think most of our graduates see the wisdom in that halfway through or by the time they leave. And so we do have a little bit of a captive audience right there at the beginning, which is good because sometimes it takes a while to convince people how much this stuff matters, how important it is. Jacob Parkinson, who graduated in 2010 with an English degree and is now a law student at the University of Minnesota, he sent in a question that says, what can study in the humanities do for a student in an increasingly digital and networked culture and economy? Is there anything different about a Lutheran education in 2016 than, say, 50 years ago? Ooh, that's two good questions. And uh, and I remember Jacob. Hello, Jacob. Yeah. I'll take the the digital question first. I talked about how faculty have these amazing and creative ideas. Uh, One of the things we're working on now is we're moving towards a program in digital humanities, uh, which is a national movement. There's lots of folks doing digital humanities, and it means lots of different things. At one level, it's just thinking about how do we use new technologies to do what we've always done, to read text, to think about text, to communicate arguments across time. But at uh, another level, digital humanities is all these 
fascinating new techniques of transcription, of digitizing uh, 400-year-old texts so that anybody in the world can access Sure. Um, an ancient letter that it used to be you had to go to a special library to access. And so we have faculty, especially in our English department, who have assignments that are taking texts and making sure they get digitized well, making sure the transcription is accurate. Those are assignments for students? So assignments for students in classes, absolutely. That then those texts go on the web and they're accessible to the world, right? Wow. And so that's a great service to the scholarly community and to anybody who's interested. But it's also a really important set of skills that students are going to be using to engage the digital world. So that piece, I think the digital humanities is an example, right? Another quick example I'll give, right? We have a faculty member in religion who's regularly done this assignment called Hebrew Idol, which has students making videos depicting and making an argument about a biblical story. And I've heard a bunch of students uh, come back years later and talk about the experience making editing a video there proved enormously useful to them in future careers doing all sorts of stuff. Maybe even like Jacob in, in law school, right? That could be useful. I, I would I think so. so. So it's a combination of training and perspective and sharing knowledge and just kind of this exchange yeah, of ideas. Right. And then the, the last thing I'd say about the digital piece is however we are communicating with each other, right, whatever technology we use, it's going to be better if we actually have something to say and we're actually good at listening to each other. And that's right at the core of what the humanities is. So, um, so I hope that never goes out of style. I hope we, we keep up with that. Absolutely. Then the Lutheran question, I think, is, is a great one and a hard one. In its basic core principles and merits, I hope a Lutheran education isn't all that different, right? I hope there is still a fundamental commitment to truth, to freedom, to justice, and to constant reformation, right? To constant questioning. I hope those things were true 50 years ago. I, I hope they're true to get today. I hope they're true in 50 years from now. Certainly, our understanding of what truth and freedom and justice look like is different today at PLU than it was 50 years ago, right? I wasn't here, but they had some great ideas then. I think we've got some even better ideas now that are probably broader, more inclusive, and thinking better about what it means to be a community where everyone has the academic freedom to really work hard and everyone feels like they belong. So there's certainly changes that have happened. I don't think they get to the core principles. Our next question is from Andrew Gilbertson, who's another 2010 grad, and he's a copywriter at Owens Harkey Advertising in Phoenix. Mm-hmm. It's a long question, but it's an interesting setup, so I'm going to just go ahead and read the whole thing. And he wrote, unless you intend to become a teacher or a lawyer, pursuing a degree in English is often viewed as impractical. But demand for entertainment and content production, work that can't easily be outsourced or done by a machine, continues to increase. As automation and globalization have more and more of a negative impact on the American job market, do you think PLU should put more emphasis on its English writing requirements to adapt to the potential market demands of the future? Yeah, I mean, I think that gets to a point that I was trying to make earlier, but I think uh, he makes even better than I did, right, which is just creating something worth saying and being able to really understand and interpret something somebody else has said is not going to go out of style and can't be outsourced and can't be digitized or can't be uh, mechanized. So uh, so I think absolutely, right, we need to be teaching writing. And I guess one piece of what I'd say in response is it's why it's great that every student uh, who enrolls at PLU as a first-year student takes Writing 101 their first semester because we are really clear that we want these writing skills to be to be at the heart, to be at the start of every student's work at PLU. But I, I think the student is also suggesting, right, we should be pushing harder on our writing major, which I'd agree wholeheartedly. And I think what's amazing about our writing major is the range of things people can do in it and have done with it, right? So we have 
we have a fiction track, we have a poetry track, we have a creative nonfiction track, and we have a more sort of rhetoric track, uh, which would be more professional writing or, um, or writing like that. And the range of things you can do with those four sets of expertise is enormous. And certainly we have students who've gone on to be editors or to be publishers or to be authors, and that's great and amazing. But we also have students who've gone on in digital media production, in advertising, and in all sorts of other uh, methods. And I've never heard one say, boy, I wish I wish I hadn't spent all that time writing fiction because now I don't write fiction, right? Because yeah. when you write fiction, when you write poetry, what you're trying to do is get in touch with your own human experience and relate it to the experience of other human beings. And I don't know a job where that isn't relevant, where that isn't important. Neither, neither do I. We're going to be right back with a couple more questions for Dr. O'Brien. Featuring video testimony from 16 PLU students, faculty members, and staff, PLU's Listen Campaign is a collection of individual stories that provide multiple perspectives on what it means to be a community that not only embraces diversity, but also works actively in community to provide social change. Learn more at plu.edu listen. Welcome back to DChat, a PLU podcast where we have a discussion with an academic dean here at PLU, and we've been talking to Dr. Kevin O'Brien, who's the dean of the humanities department here. We're going to keep going with some alumni questions, but first, I have a question just about the languages and literatures department, and in particular, the study of language. And so what are the languages that we have here that we offer majors in? Yeah, so we offer seven languages. It's Chinese, French, German, Greek, Latin, Norwegian, and Spanish. So do you think with those language degrees that those are best utilized as kind of double majors with Chinese language degree with a business degree or a French degree with an education degree? That feels like when I was a student here, that was very common and and how I most commonly saw Mm -hmm. the languages being used. I also know... Uh, my friend Haley Ray Sherman, who was a French major, who's now a social worker in, in Seattle. And Absolutely. So that kind of might just be a fallacy about languages that they should be paired with a double mm-hmm. major most often. What What do you think of that? Yeah, I think certainly it's true of the languages. It's true of all our departments that they, they pair well, and you can, you can sort of add depth to any other major uh, if you bring a language major to it, and you can add, uh, add diversity and real power to your profile as a business person or as an advertiser or anything else, right? If you're really fluent, if you can really work mm-hmm. in another language. But I, I do want to highlight your last point there. Yeah, they can stand alone. And we have people doing great work. So we have a Spanish grad who w- works as a Spanish teacher at a school right down the street and stays in touch with their faculty, and they're still designing lessons together. And you can do that with just the, just the language major. But then like your friend, uh, lots of people, what they get from their languages and literatures major is a deep understanding of the richness of another culture, of the challenges of communicating with people in any language, and of the the different ways you can think when you use a different language. And all those skills, this is my thesis I keep coming back to, I realize, Zach, Absolutely. all those skills are translatable, right? No mm-hmm. uh, no work doing done to better understand the human experience, to better communicate the human experience ever goes to waste because we're going to be doing that the rest of our lives. So yeah, yeah I uh, I'm really proud when I hear of a, of a student who is a Norwegian major who's now doing something that doesn't necessarily connect directly to the nation of Norway because what they learned from exploring that other culture has expanded them, has expanded their abilities, has expanded their capacity to work with other people. Has there been any languages or majors added since you've been here for 10 years, or has it been those languages for quite a while, or is there any considerations of, of new languages? How is that a, a kind of fixed or yeah. um, living offering? 
those seven have been set since I've been here. And I think we, we can make a good case. And uh, if you've got an hour, I'll talk to you about each one of them and why <laughs> sure we should absolutely right keep each one of them. <laughs> but those have been stable. Uh, those give us a really nice sort of global reach, uh, a really clear attention to the most dominant global languages, but also uh, clear attention to two languages that aren't super popular these days, ancient Greek and ancient Latin, but that deeply shaped our civilization and our world. And so I think the, the range of what you can do with those seven is great. Obviously, uh, with infinite money and time, yeah, I love to have Arabic and Japanese and a uh, hundred other languages sure. taught here. Uh, the one language that we are uh, potentially growing into, uh, there's talk about developing a Native American and Indigenous Studies minor. Um, and as part of that, uh, we will get some support uh, from local Native peoples to teach uh, Native language really uh, cool. here on campus, which I think will be an amazing offering and help us do a better job being right here where we are, right, being in place here in the Pacific Northwest. That would be really, really, really cool. So we have a question from Rod Nash, who's a 1996 graduate and an English and Religion double major. He serves as the Director of Outreach at Trinity Presbyterian Church in Tacoma. Oh, cool. And he wrote, how is PLU preparing to equip the next generation of PLU religion students for a quickly changing religious landscape, both nationally as well as internationally? Are there primary areas of focus and learning that will be necessary to grasp for these students? And if so, what would those be? I think what we are doing, we are working hard to diversify the religions we cover, to diversify the ways we talk about religion. Uh, we've got a great healthy department of 11 people in religion that cover a lot of different methodologies, historical, theological, sociological, and textual, and also cover a wide range of the world's religions, right? So we have, a, we have an expertise. We have a specialization in Christianity in our religion department, but we also have an expert in Buddhism. We have an expert in Native American religions. We regularly offer classes in Judaism and Islam. And so we are trying to help students see that there is more than one way to think about religion and that there is definitely more than one religion worth thinking about. And I think that's equipping our graduates in lots of ways. We're really proud when we send our religion graduates to seminary because they always report back. I was so much more ready for these classes than other students, and especially classes not just in the Bible, not just in Christian theology, but classes that are trying to that's, open their eyes to civic engagement. Yeah. I was going to ask you about seminary. I would imagine that historically the PLU religion department has been the undergrad education for a lot of pastors who yeah, went on to seminary absolutely. and went on to right. careers and not only Lutheran, but Presbyterian and all sorts of denomination, no non-denominational yeah. churches. But I also wonder, too, if that was more prevalent 20, 40, Definitely. 80 yes. years ago, where that, you know, a higher percentage of religion majors aspired to be pastoral or religious leaders. Do you mm -hmm. think that's a fair assessment? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think we're, you know, we're here in the nun zone in the Pacific Northwest uh, and the, the number of people who live around here and the number of our students who claim religious affiliation is shrinking. And so it's no surprise that fewer of them are thinking of going into some form of traditional ministry. Seminaries are working hard on that and it's, it's creating real opportunities. Uh, I was just talking with a former student who currently runs a yoga studio and does amazing work doing a nonprofit yoga studio, but she's thinking of going back to seminary. Not, I don't think, because she wants to be ordained and serve in a traditional church, but because she's got questions on how she works with people, how she works with communities that are getting to deep spiritual levels. And so 
what I think we're already seeing, what I think we're going to see more of is people who want something like seminary, even if it doesn't lead to a traditional ordination track. And uh, I think we're going to be preparing students who want to be ordained, who want to be Lutheran pastors or Presbyterian pastors or anything else. And we're also going to be preparing students who want something like what you used to get from a seminary education, but then use that as social workers or as activist organizers or as yoga teachers. That makes a lot of sense. I hadn't thought about seminary. I thought probably about a religion degree in that way, but not necessarily a seminary. Yeah. Oh, no. You should keep studying religion uh, for as long as possible. I, I haven't stopped yet, and it's worked out really well. So the department within the Division of Humanities we haven't discussed yet is the philosophy department. And yeah. we were talking a little bit off air, as they say, mm-hmm. about how in some ways the philosophy department is kind of the original interdisciplinary major because there's this heavy dose of political science or at PLU what we call politics and government right. and a little bit of history, a little bit of econ, psychology, all mm-hmm. these things rolled into one. The sum of all those parts can be a really daunting (laughs) and intimidating area of study. And there's probably stereotypes and things like that that come along. So, I mean, with all these questions that we've had today about how is this... How is this focus area modernizing or is is my degree going to be a degree in 50 years? And there's a lot of nervousness, I think, within our alumni questions around the continued relevance of the humanities. And I think for none of these departments would that loom larger than for possibly for philosophy. So Mm -hmm. can you kind of tell us a little bit about maybe some misconceptions of philosophy or how that department here distinguishes itself? Yeah, I mean, I think that definitely the course that we we offer in the liberal arts core that I hear the most trepidation about is philosophy because students just assume it's going to be hard. And it is hard, right? So they're right. But it's so relevant and so important that it needs to be hard and and it should be hard work. And students, uh, as, as I say, once they're through their philosophy class, right, I never hear them regretting that they had to do it. The department here has a real focus on, a, on what's called applied philosophy. So it's asking questions about the world today. And there's other ways to do philosophy. But our department is really interested in what's philosophy got to say to people right here, right now, and works really hard to be in conversation about that. So like you said, there's partnerships with politics and government. And this January, we'll have a philosophy professor with a politics and government professor in Washington, D.C. with students on a J-term studying politics, not just what's happening politically, but philosophically. What are the what are the questions and assumptions going on there? Another example of what I think is great about this applied focus of our philosophy program is this food symposium that they run uh, every other year. And Yeah, that's a really cool thing. Yeah, and so, so they want to ask philosophical questions about food, right? What should we eat? How do we know what's true about the food we're eating when we're getting conflicting messages about it? And they hold these symposiums to engage those questions, but they know that they can't answer those questions alone. So they have panels and they have guest speakers who include uh, local chefs and farmers from the Puyallup Valley and experts who work in food banks. Doing philosophy in conversation with those folks makes all the applications, all the implications of philosophy so much clearer and so much more apparent to our students. Yeah, and it's not what you would think of when you would imagine probably what folks are talking about in philosophy classes. Absolutely right. So so Aristotle and Plato still come up and still should come up, right? But it's how do Aristotle and Plato help me think about should I be a vegetarian or not, um, yeah. which is a question that, uh, you know, lots of people wrestle with, is a, is a personal question. So in addition to these undergrad programs, there's also the, the MFA, the Master in Creative Writing. And then also, I think I saw that the Scandinavian Cultural Center uh, in the yeah. UC is also in their programs and, and awesome work that they do is also part of the humanities department. So how do those programs connect? I mean, obviously the MFA is part of connected with the English department mm-hmm. and the cultural center has a lot of, a lot of go-betweens, interactions. Between, exactly. Program, yeah. But 
How do you see those as complementing the undergrad programs, but then also being their own entities? Yeah, I think both are, again, expressions of this sort of search for articulating, interpreting, critically analyzing human experience, right? The MFA is training people who want to be professional writers. It's one of the earliest and best examples of this non-residential uh, format for doing a master's degree in creative writing. So students are here for an intensive every summer, and then they have really close mentoring relationships uh, by email for the rest of the year. And the the level of charge that the students have when they're here and throughout the year is just amazing. To talk to these students is to talk to really energized, empowered writers. And the sense of community that happens when they're, when they're on campus is just electric. It's the coolest thing. If you want to be around in the summers just to see it. And then the Scandinavian Cultural Center is, is a program that does a lot of work with the community, a lot of work with students and with the Norwegian and Scan Studies programs in touch with PLU's heritage. We're founded sure. by Norwegians, but also thinking hard about how that heritage connects to today, right? So there's a lot of attention to the diversity of the Scandinavian experience, to immigrant experiences in Scandinavia, to Sami indigenous culture in Scandinavia coming out of the, the SEC. And it's, it's inspiring to see what can be done. One way these connect to our other programs, right, is both our options for our students. Our students are sometimes interns at the Scandinavian Cultural Center. Our graduates sometimes go on to the MFA program uh, if they want to continue working on writing, whether they were writing majors or not. But just another way is the, the enriched conversation we have. Because we have these colleagues who are professional writers beyond our core English writing faculty who work with students remotely, and because we have all the resources of the Scandinavian Cultural Center and the great speakers and the great yeah. musicians it brings. So I want to end with a discussion about how humanities alumni can get involved with the division or their particular department? I mean, this is a different question than for the business school. We sure. just, in our previous episode, talked to Dr. Lee, and that's more of a, well, you can, you know, there's more uniformity. And mm -hmm. it's interesting with the humanities where the vocations that these students are choosing are a hundredfold. Absolutely. But like you've been saying, it all comes back to these same consistent tools and characteristics of how to consider the world. And I'll pose the same question to you that I posed to Dr. Lee, which yeah. was, Say you're not the executive director of an NGO mm -hmm. or you're not a award-winning writer, you know, or maybe you're on your way to being that or, or that's what you aspire Absolutely. to be. But maybe you're still just 30-something, solid career, doing well, would like to get involved with PLU or with the department that means so much to you. Mm -hmm. What are ways that you can do that? The very concrete way, we are about the human experience and the humanities, right? So uh, so I'd say be in touch, like reach out. And if you don't know who to talk to in, in a particular department, my email is obrien, O-B-R-I-E-N, at plu.edu, right? And I'll connect you to somebody in the department that you care about because we want to hear your stories and we want to be telling your stories better. And we want to be sharing your stories with our current students because, as we've both been saying here, what the humanities is about is learning to communicate with other people about human experience. And the more we know your experience and the more we can show students how you've used the skills you've gained, the better our current students are going to see the value of what they're doing in the humanities. So, so be in touch. Tell us your stories. And then I think tell other people your story too, right? You've made some allusions to, you know, the sort of fear there is around, oh, what, what could possibly be the future of a religion major or a philosophy well, major? Yeah, yeah, reading these questions. And there's a couple uh, yeah. we didn't read, but that was, it seemed like a, a, a thread between all these questions mm -hmm. is sort of... A sense of nervousness. Yeah. yeah, where are we going with this? I think one of the things we can uh, we can do is we can talk, those of us who had majors in the humanities, about what we studied and how we're still using it and how it helps us do whatever we're doing. 
And it might be that you, you have a job you don't think is super connected to your uh, to your classics major or to your philosophy major, and that's okay. But I would be really curious to know: Do you think it makes you a more interesting person, or makes you happier that you have had they've had these studies? And if it hasn't, I'd be interested to know that too, right? Uh, but I think the more we can tell the story of my major made me not necessarily the career I've got, but it made me who I am. I think the more we're talking about the real, the deep value, yeah. not just of the humanities, but of what we do here at PLU broadly. So tell your story to us and then tell your story to your friends, right? Because the best argument against the people who say there's no future in the philosophy major or the, the French major or anything else is to point them to a philosophy major or a French major who's living a good, full, happy life. There's thousands of them out there. A lot of them are PLU grads and it makes me really proud. That's excellent. Thank you so much for coming by here today and, and having this conversation with us. Thanks so much for having me, Zach. This was great.